Hey guys, this is JD Graves here with Iconoclash Review. That's right, folks, your quality cheap thrills are now coming to you in podcast form because everything else does. For those of you who don't know, Iconoclash Review is a neo-genre pulp rag published biannually. We are an imprint of Down and Out Books who publish our magazine. This is the one they published in January. We actually have an open submission period coming up on June the 1st. It is a very short window. It will end on June the 14th. For more details on submission guidelines, please check out our website, econoclash.com. Here at Econoclash Review, the podcast, we would like to extend our uh, exploration of pulp in all its forms, be it crime, noir, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, bizarro, weird, um, westerns involving Cthulhu, whatever. We will discuss movies, we will discuss books, we will uh, highlight some independent authors that uh, we think that you should know about uh, as we continue our journey through this world for as long as we can. If you don't know William R. Soldan's work, he is he appeared in Iconoclast Review number one, as well as he has a book of short stories out called In Just the Right Light. I highly recommend you pick this book up the back cover. This is Rusty Barnes. Rusty Barnes says, people live with the realities of violence terrible childhoods, jail, and hard living. Story after story, there's a craftsman's eye for undiluted heart-crushing detail that can kill you with a simple-sounding sentence. William R. Soldan grew up in and around the Rust Belt city of Youngstown, Ohio, where he lives with his wife and two children. A high school dropout and college graduate, he holds a BA in English Literature from Youngstown State University, an MFA from Northeast Ohio Master of Fine Arts program, his work appears or is forthcoming in publications such as New World Writing, Gordon Square Review, Thuglet, Bjonk, or Boink, Anomaly Literary Journal, The Best American Mystery Stories 2017, and many others. To learn more about him and his work, feel free to visit his new author website, williamrsoldan.com, and hit him up on social media. I understand that Bill actually has two more books coming out soon, and, uh, Whenever we get the chance, hopefully we will we will help promote those. He is a writer of some merit, and we think that he should be read by all. Without further ado, I would like to present to you William R. Soldan, Recompense. Tonight, Creighton Keene's coming apart at the seams. Has been for quite some time. In fact, so when the small segregated remains of his rational mind beckon him to turn around and just go back. The words clatter unheeded to the base of his skull like scattered shrapnel. He pulls his wife's musty pantyhose over his head, drags himself from the driver's seat of the rusted-out Delta 88 and into the cool October night, his dead uncle's Ruger clamped in one sweaty palm. There's still time. The last bit of reason pleads. Not like this, but he's already through the front door of Mort's, 
thought silenced by his own thundering voice, hot through the sheer stocking covering his face. The money, he shouts, leveling the Ruger unsteadily out in front of him. All of it. Now. It sounds all wrong. Something from a bad movie. What else is he supposed to say? Behind the counter, perched on a stool, is old man Mort himself, tired and gray. Damn it. He hoped it would be one of the high school kids that works part-time. Someone young, too scared to do anything but comply. Now, for a moment, he wishes he'd have gone someplace else. But where? The only other place for miles is Miller's Tap, the tavern next door. The hall would be better for sure, but the lot's full of Harleys and pickups and inside gathering of rednecks and other rough company. Men with records, war vets, all of them liquored up. Most of them packing, guns, blades, knuckle brass. He'd be lucky to get out in one piece. He steps closer to the counter. Mort drops the copy of Field and Stream he was leafing through, and it lands with a flat smack. He raises his hands, his eyes wide, confused, and the look of paralyzed shock on the old man's face gives Creighton momentary pause. Just long enough to fracture his focus and weaken his poise. Mort's a decent man. Hell, more than decent. This is all wrong. Please, Creighton says. Just do it. Everything in the drawer. The safe, too. He doesn't want to hurt the old man. Anyone. Isn't sure he can. He just wants this to be over. Please, he says again. Make it quick and I'll get... Okay, son. Okay, just don't go and do something you'll regret. Creighton's nodded up inside. The shake started over an hour ago. The chills, low and deep inside, then creeping up his spine. By now, the tremors are electric. The recycled air in the store calms his goose flesh, dries his eyes behind the beige haze of nylon. Save the talk, old man, he says. Don't neither of us need it. The money, now! Mort empties the register into a brown paper sack, loose change and all, and sets it on the counter, returning his hands to their raised positions. There, he says. Just go on now. No need anyone getting hurt here. The safe, Creighton says. I know it's in there under the desk. He motions with the pistol toward the open office door, where he'd seen on more than one occasion over the years. Mort and other employees, Creighton's own mother among them, putting the deposit bag during shift changes. Now, son, Mort says, there's nothing in there gonna do you any good. Creighton shoves the muzzle of the Ruger into the pale flesh at the center of the old man's forehead, his stomach queasy. Whoa, now, take it easy, the old man says. Just hold your water, I'm going, I'm going. Mort enters the office door only a couple feet away, crouches down slowly, his joints popping like snapped twigs, and spins the dial with his bony fingers. Creighton's got a clear view of him from where he stands, but the sound of glass breaking behind him steals his attention. He wheels around to see a woman about his age, early thirties, and a young boy of about seven or eight. A jar of pickles lies shattered on the tile floor around their feet. The woman screams and drops a basket of groceries, loaf of bread, 
peanut butter and jelly, a carton of eggs oozing yellow yolk. The child clutches a packet of chocolate chip cookies to his chest. Creighton thinks of his own son, four years old, at home in bed, oblivious to where his father has gone and the type of man he really is. Creighton's stomach lurches at the thought that he almost fired, shot the woman, maybe the boy. On the ground, he says, his voice low so not to frighten the kid any more than he probably already is. The mother grabs her son and lies on top of him. Please, she begs, please. The clank of the safe door opening redirects his attention, but he's only halfway turned, swinging the pistol back toward the counter when a stinging shot from the old man's revolver parts the meat of Creighton's right shoulder, sending him sideways into a display of potato chips and beef jerky. The pain is searing, but he holds on to the Ruger as he staggers, loses his balance. He fires as he goes down on his ass, a red stain spreading down the sleeve of his denim jacket. Mort drops out of sight, and when Creighton hears no movement, hears nothing but the muffled screams of the mother shielding her son and of the buzzing fluorescence above. He clamors to his feet, but keeps his distance. Then he hears gasping and looks over the counter. His hasty aim and pull found the old man's heart by sheer bad fortune. Mort claws at his chest with gnarled hands, a dark blossom flowering out around the hole in the breast pocket of his worn chambray shirt. Adrenaline and pain push Creighton forward. He runs behind the counter to the safe, which stands open. Nothing inside but some papers and a box of thirty-eight shells for the cult special lying by Mort's right leg. He stands over the old man, whose body is stretched out across the office threshold. Where is it? he says, panicking. Where's the goddamn cash? But Mort's eyes have sought that faraway place now. Life draining out. His clutching hands go limp on his bloodied chest, mouth slack in a permanent plea. Hey, Creighton says. Hey, say something, damn it! He toes the old man's side with one wolverine work boot. Hey, he yells again, but the reality of the situation hits him hard and leaves him cold. He just killed a man. A man who's only ever been kind to the people of this town letting them run tabs so they wouldn't go hungry between paychecks, giving them extra work stocking shelves or shoveling snow when those paychecks weren't enough to keep the heat on in the winter. He was a man who regularly donated to the St. John's Food Pantry and sponsored fundraisers for children with terminal diseases, a man who might have been about to close up for the night but had perhaps stayed open a little longer so a mother and her son could buy some groceries, as he'd done for Crichton, and his own mother the night they moved to Miles Junction all those years ago, shortly after his father had died in the First Gulf War. This last thought brings him back to the woman and boy on the floor. Her screaming has droned off into a string of low sobs. Crichton turns. Her head is down, her body still shielding the kid. He looks down at Mort once more. I'm sorry, he whispers. I didn't mean to. I really didn't. Then he grabs a sack of cash from the floor beside the old man and flees. In the car, he rips off the stocking covering his face, peeling it from the scruff of weak old beard, and lets out a pent-up breath. His heart, 
assaults his ribcage as he dumps the money on the passenger seat. Fives and singles. A twenty. Several post-dated checks. A tinkling of coins. For a moment, the futility of everything severs his nerves and he sits there, under the weight of what he's done, the knowledge that what he's gained is nothing compared to what he's lost. What the old man lost. The second Creighton pulled the trigger. The second he made his choice and walked through the door. He wads up a wrinkled blue bandana from his back pocket and stuffs it into his jacket against the wound. The pressure makes him wince and grit his back teeth. And he almost gives up, waits for the law to come, as it surely will. Way out here, in this unincorporated backwater burg, it might take a while for the township police to show up, but they will show up. Eventually. But his ready resignation is snuffed out. Reignited in the form of blazing fear and desperate self-preservation, as the Oldsmobile's rear window implodes in spray of tempered glass. He reels back to look. Several men gathering, hunched low, one with a pump action, another with both hands gripping an automatic pistol. He turns the key, listens as the engine struggles, then turns over with a coughing spew of black exhaust. The men have fallen back, spread out. Creighton slams the transmission into reverse and accelerates, cuts hard, tires biting gravel as he hits the brakes and finds drive. Another shot pings off the rear end, another off the roof. Then... Just as he thinks he's into the black, two sets of burning headlights give chase as he rattles through the night. He asks himself time and again the same question. How did you end up here? But it's one to which he already knows the answer. He supposes if this was a book or a film, he'd be the subject of some tragic fall from grace. Small-town athlete, maybe. Destined for glory if not for the car accident that ruined his good arm, causing him to spiral into depression and addiction as his future crumbled before his eyes. Or perhaps a victim of some heinous trauma, just trying to cope with a lingering past he can't escape. There'd even be a little virtue in it if he'd resorted to such measures to feed his family. But there was nothing selfless about what he did. What he does... The truth, which he keeps at arm's length, is that he likes it. Or did. It feels good to get high. And when things feel good, you do them again. And again. Over and over, because it's never quite like the first time. But you'll be damned if you don't keep trying to get back there. Some things, however, have a way of getting a hold of a person until you're doing them not because they feel good, but because practice becomes penchant, habit, and some habits have claws. He managed to lose the trucks that had followed him out of town on the county back roads, and by the time he comes growling into the almost otherworldly place where the countryside condenses into the industrial fringes of the city, he knows he's extended his short time he has left before the law tracks him down, before judgment casts its vast shadow over his guilty head. But he tells himself a little time is all he needs because he can't keep up the daily charade, the scheming, drawing new lines, crossing them, draw and cross every day. Maybe he'll go out shooting. Maybe he'll hope for enough dope to stop his heart. A rock big enough to knock it racing from his chest. Not the first time the option has crossed his mind. And if he keeps going, it won't be the last. But how far... 
How far can he really go? He's never robbed, never caused physical pain, emotional infliction beyond measure, but never this, never killed. His shoulder screams, hot and throbbing under the wadded rag as he comes into Youngstown along the Mahoning River. Cross-hatching railroad tracks run its length in both directions, through deserts of brownfield fouled by long-gone factories and mills. A picture of industry's tenuous hold, of hope relinquished. In a quarter mile, he turns off Wilson, up a steep slant of fractured asphalt, buckled up in places, bumpy with cold patch, and passes the water treatment plant. The sulfur stink of it rising up invisible, heavy, slinking in through the busted back window. The Campbell projects are a place he's been coming since Uncle Troy, his father's brother, first brought him here as a boy of 13, stopping to score after unloading a bed full of scrap over on Poland Avenue. Don't you say nothing about this to your ma, he told him. She'd never understand and never let you come work with me again, you hear? Creighton nodded. Uncle Troy had taken up the role of father figure for his nephew several years earlier after returning from the Middle East. He and Creighton's old man had enlisted together, served for the money, for their families, the only viable opportunity for some. Even when the economy's not in the shitter, but two brothers had shipped out and only one came back. Creighton hardly remembers his father. All he still has of the man is a creased photo of him holding Creighton as a baby. So faded they look like ghosts. It was another few years before Creighton tried the hard stuff. He and a carload of buddies from school, most of whom are dead now, or in one kind of lockup or another, had been smoking some grass, drinking, bored. He knew somewhere they could go, he said. The dope boys on the corner didn't seem to care as long as they had cash. He made the trip a few more times by himself after that. A few more with his uncle. But Uncle Troy is dead now. Has been a long time. Shot in the head, not far from here. Body found flown by and bloated in a vacant house. The only blood Creighton had still living was his little boy. That alone should be enough to make him stop. But it somehow never is. He's made this run daily, sometimes more than once, for longer than he can tally. The one thing that takes him out of this reality helps him turn the lens away from himself, from the world he inhabits, from his wife and son, and his inability to give them what they need, doing all he knows and knowing it's never enough. Salvage jobs, quick licks, middle manning pinching bags, and now the gun, the taking of a life. Any chance of something else is ash in the wind, away from all that, and toward what? The black delusion? The dreamscape? The glimmer of grand departure? Elusive, fleeting, always around the next bend? The streets are dark save the faint orange cones of light from the lamppost dotting each block. Rows of identical buildings branch off in adjacent angles. More like barracks or storage facilities than homes. The only signs that people live here are the grills and lawn chairs and cheap plastic toys that clutter the concrete walkways jutting from the metal grated screen doors. 
Several hooded figures move back and forth between the buildings and the street-like sentinel's standing guard. Others lurk in shadows, out of sight but for the glow of their cigarettes. One comes into view, baggy coat and tan dickies, young, not much more than a kid. He bends into the passenger window. Creighton lays it all in the seat. Seventy-three dollars and some loose change. Get the fuck out of here with them nickels and dimes, the kid says. He picks up the cash, counts it. Then he looks up. Shit, my dude, you fucking leaking. Creighton looks down at the carnage of his shoulders soaking through the jacket, tacky and purple. A fresh bolt of pain. His head reels. Not as bad as it looks, he says. Just give me the shit. H, whatever I get for that. About out of dog food, Kid says. Only one left. Rest is hard. Fuck, Creighton says. A sensation like spiders crawling up his spine. Fine. Cool, whatever. Let's just do it. The kid backs up on the curve. Whistles to one of his homeboys up the street. He stands against a telephone pole, waiting. Homeboy scans the block. Raises a hand. Come on. Creighton rolls up. He pulls onto a street crowded with vacant houses and empty buildings. Boarded up windows and doors and strip siding. Busted steps. Sagging gutters. Remnants of steelworker housing and watering holes from the city's heyday. Lost to the last four decades. He parks behind a bar called He's Not Here. But the joke's on them because now no one is. Dead sign. Dead dream. He hoped to cop enough to do himself in right here, in the dark seclusion of a forgotten neighborhood. His wife and son would be better off, as would her grandparents, who have been putting them up for the last year and facing the fallout of Creighton's day-to-day transgressions. He sold their antiques, heirloom jewelry, power tools, the goddamn gas from their riding lawnmower. Shooting enough to unshackle them from his burden would be his greatest recompense. But his habit is one to be reckoned with. Hundreds a day just to stay stable. Tonight, the misfortune of a twenty-fold won't even scratch the itch, but depending on how much it's been stomped on, it might quell the pain. The electric bones and creeping skin, the cold sweats, what's left? A knotted sack of yellow rocks on a good day, a few hours maybe? Chasing spots and picking lint from a crumpled rug? Smoking till your fingers are black and blistered, lips cracked and raw. But this isn't a good day. No good days, but in fantasies. He sets up in the green and lurid dashboard light. Three, two, one. Failed launch. No liftoff. Not near what he needs, but remedy enough to slow things down. His head, heart, quaking limbs. The pain in his shoulder still stings, but retreats. He sits motionless, digital clock turning out minutes as he wishes for a nod. No more hope for the big sleep, but just a small one. Make this all a bad dream, the only prayer he knows. The driveway is long and dark as he rides neutral, headlights off, engine killed. As far as the gravel strip behind the shed, there are no lights on in the house, no one waiting up. Given up on that. All too often, he doesn't come home for days. He gets out and heads for the detached garage, the stairs that lead to the dusty loft above it. He'll hole up here, smoke what he has. 
fast and hard. Maybe he missed the sunrise. Sorrow seizes him at the thought. Then, in an articulate rage, how he can be here, his wife and son sleeping close enough to call to. How this has become his unwavering obligation. Make it to the dawn, he tells himself. Make it till the sun comes up. The law will look for him tonight at his mother's. If the men who chased him got his plates, her plates, her car, all that was left of what she had to leave. He and his wife and son had moved into the single wide trailer after she died. Heart attack. But when things got bad, he pawned what he could, then sold the place for scrap. They'll find nothing there but empty space. A concrete slab. And they'll find him, too, sooner than later. He loads the glass. He'll finish this once and for all. First thing, he sparks the lighter, cranks the flame into hissing torch, pulls the fire through the glass, crackling heat, ether, chemical inspiration. It unfolds in his brain, body that clenches, slams like a shimmering fist in the gut. He grabs his crotch, squeezes, gets up, paces the plank floor, heedless of the gaps. He reloads, blasts. Reloads. Blast. Put it to the rest. He thinks. Reload. Blast. Reload. Hard to breathe. Breathe. Blast. Seize up. Reload. Load. Load. He's not sure how long it's been when the lights begin to pour in at the end of the long dirt drive. A patriotic strobe of red and white and blue dances across his body in the darkness. They're here. Blast. Blast. Reload. He looks through the cracks in the walls. Spotlights wash the lawn. Static of radios. Voices. Over here, one says. That's the one, says another. A high pitch ringing in his ears, rising inside his head. Blast. Seize. Ice pick between the ribs. Jackhammer heartbeat. He reaches into his jacket pocket. The entire side wet and sticky with his blood. Finds the Ruger. The throbbing is distant. Pounding on the door of the house. Voices. Reload. Blast. Finish it. He lets go of the glass, but it's fused to his burning flesh, dangling. He rips it off. Drops it. It rolls away. Gone at last. He checks the chamber. Loaded. More pounding inside and out. We know you're in there. Come out now. Blast. He can no longer feel his hands as they drop the pistol and unlatch the loft door lets it swing open toward the outside with a bang. A clutter of stars and torn clouds. He slips back into the teeming dark, lights like budding galaxies spotting his vision. Up there! The floor is beneath him as he reaches the back wall and spins to face the open doorway, a rectangle cut from the night. As he spins again and again, spins and sprints, but it falls away, and he can no longer feel his feet as the colors swell and burst like sunspots around him. Come out! Come out with your hands up! His body is a humming nerve. Every inch, a taut wire struck. Nothing but cool air now. Nothing but cool air. Copyright 2018 by William R. Soldan.
Well, that's it, folks. The very first ECR podcast is in the can. I want to thank you for tuning in, be it on YouTube or through Spotify, iTunes, or whatever it is that you find this podcast to listen to in your ear holes. Please check us out online at www.econoclash.com. We are an imprint of Down and Out Books. You can check out Down and Out Books and many of their wonderful authors at downandoutbooks.com. As a little self-promotion, I have a series of quarantine quick reads that are still available. Uh, This one right here is called Just Another Job That Doesn't Pay Very Well. You can find it on Amazon.com. There will be an Audible book coming for this soon, as well as for The Sweetheart Sour and Her Coffin's Colder Than the Mink Glove. Until I see you thrill seekers again, be sure to remember the immortal words of Dr. Mug and the Hitchhiker. Don't panic. Three cheers for the man who said, don't panic!